This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is, is, that, is that when you work with eschatological texts in the New Testament, you see this theme of the messianic woes and the, the battle of what it takes to inject the king, presence of the kingdom into, uh, in, into mm-hmm. the reality of the world. I'm, I'm working right now in Matthew 11 where uh, John the Baptist is preaching and it said, you know, no one greater has been born of woman, but the one who's least in the kingdom is greater than he. And then it goes on to say, you know, until John uh, uh, the prophets prophesied, and it talks about the kingdom of God is now being preached, and but it's suffering violence, and violent men uh, seek to take it by force. And it, uh, the background of this is the messian; it's the groaning of the creation for redemption. And the roots of that story certainly are uh, found in what is happening in the early chapters of. Uh, Genesis. Okay, let's come to the New Testament now, and uh, passages that certainly are a part of the discussion and are famous. We've already mentioned two uh, briefly, but they're worth putting on the table. Uh, Jesus, when asked about marriage, goes back to the example of Adam and Eve for marriage and uh, talks about that as the beginning. And, and interesting, he quotes he when he quotes it, he says, "And the two of them mm-hmm. will become one flesh," which mm-hmm. is not in the traditional Hebrew text, but he says the two of them mm-hmm. because he's emphasizing the man and the woman. I mean, that's a very literal understanding. That's of, right of what's happening. Yeah. So, so we have you know, someone might ask, "Well, did Jesus ever allude to these kinds of texts? Did he ever say anything about them?" Well, of course, the Mark ten and Matthew uh, nineteen texts uh, mm-hmm. do that. Uh, perhaps the most famous text, and I think we'll start here, um, is the text in Romans 5. And uh, uh, again, uh, just to get it in front of everybody, I'll read it and then we can come in in turn. And Mark, I think I'll have you lead off. So then, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all people because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but there was no accounting for sin when there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who did not sin in the same way that Adam, who is a type of the coming one, transgressed. But the gracious gift is not like the transgression. For if the many died through the transgression of the one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many? And the gift is not like the one who sinned, for judgment resulting from the one transgression led to condemnation, but the gracious gift from the many failures led to justification. For if by the justification of the one man death reigned through the one, how much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as condemnation for all men came through one transgression, so Two, through one righteous act came the righteousness leading to life for all people. For just as through disobedience of the one man many were made uh, sinners, so also through the obedience of one man many will be made righteous. 
Now the law came so that the transgression may, may increase, but where sin increased, grace about multiplied all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Clearly we have a typology being built here, a contrast between Adam on the one hand and Jesus on the other. We have the con consistent comparison of the one man to the one man, the one act to the one act. Mark? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th I think that uh, probably even the critics of our position or those that would not take a literal Adam would point to this passage as their toughest passage, you know, with which to deal. It uh, argues for the origin of sin. It argues for the original death. It argues for the resultant fallen sinful nature on uh, who have been born from Adam. Uh, I think it's, it's fascinating that you, you get uh, the, the issues of sin, death, imputation, even the reference to a type. Uh, in the study of typology, uh, types were not mythological. They were a person, event, or institution that had a historical reality that pointed to a New Testament you know, fulfillment or, you know, and it's easier looking backwards from, you know, the reality back to the shadow to understand those. But uh, uh, even the term type, uh, Adam is a person uh, who went through an event as a result, a theology that developed that comes back to the argument of etiology. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I notice in 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, you've got the transgression of one, one who sinned, by one who sinned, death reigned, through one transgression, condemnation to all, through one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. You just keep getting that repeated phrase, repeated phrase, it was through that person that we have the explanation for all that has gone wrong, uh, and for the very reason for which Christ came, uh, you know, to do his work. So the theological uh, foundation uh, of all of our salvation, uh, the issue of judgment, the issue of Im imputation and identification with Christ, all of that is rooted in the relationship of a historical Adam and therefore a historical Christ. Yeah, I would only add that as the story of Adam is told, there's a whole set of expectations that are tied to what God has created. And those expectations are dashed in Genesis 3 when Adam falls. Mm -hmm. So that sense of expectation is now satisfied in the last Adam. I was preaching in a church in Scotland and used the term the second Adam. <laughs> and an old lady came up to me and she was waving her finger and she said, uh, he's not the second Adam. There's not going to be a third and a fourth Adam. He's the last Adam. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, what we have here is what what we call a reverse typology, in which in which the type and the anti-type are in contrast to one another in terms of how they function. Mm. So that one brings sin and death, the other brings grace and salvation, and uh, and, and this is why Paul uses the much more language to talk about what mm. Jesus has brought. Versus, uh, versus what it is that Adam is responsible for. Nathan, you look like you're smiling at me again. You ready to dive in? <laughs> I am indeed. This, this is exactly where we find uh, a complete difference between the triviality of the Copernican issue, the sun revolving around the earth, and in this case, we're talking about something absolutely critical to the faith of Christianity. Um, mm. 
this is this is a passage that ties together the necessity for a historical Adam with our understanding of salvation in Christ. It ties together themes of condemnation because of Adam and justification in Christ. So, uh, yeah, this is obviously one of the one of the most significant battleground passages, precisely because of how it ties these absolutely essential themes together. And I, I think it's important, you know, it took us uh, three quarters of an hour to get here, but I think it's important to say that everything that we talked about leading up to the discussion of Romans 5 is telling us this is how this text is being read. Yes. Um, the, the, there isn't a whole lot of work going on here to justify why these associations are being made. Um, it's because uh, these ideas uh, theologically were being affirmed coming out of Judaism and into Christianity. And so Paul is a good old rabbi <laughs> who's come to the Lord, um, you know, uh, makes this point and drives it home. Yes. Amen. Very strongly. Uh, Darrell, could I ask you a hermeneutical question? Because I know you've okay. done a lot of work in New Testament use of the old. Mm -hmm. And you have uh, actually contributed to volumes, uh, multi-author volumes, where you've taken a certain position. I'm not supposed to be answering questions, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think you have something to, yeah. to add here. Uh, does it seem to you that those who want to argue against an historical atom are almost going to be pushed to the point where they're going to have to say Paul was wrong? Paul really did not understand these texts correctly. And it seems like that is a shaky place to be. Yeah, I think that what the, I think the way the argument is going to be made is Paul's accommodating himself to a common understanding of people had at the time. We know better now uh, for a variety of reasons, and that's going to be the way you're going to try and uh, relativize what Paul is doing here. I, th I think the problem, the problem that I have with that is is that I. I you know, there, there are forms of bibliology that say that the Bible is accurate with regards to matters of faith and practice, but not on matters of history. But the trouble is you can't decouple that here, okay? This is a matter of faith and practice. Uh, it happens to be a matter of faith and practice, like so much of Christianity, that is tied to certain things that are said to have happened. And so, just like the resurrection is rooted in history, and so we don't make that into a metaphor, uh, so here Adam is an, is an issue that is being presented on the table as being a matter of history, and we shouldn't think about making that a metaphor either. And so I think that's, that's what you're seeing here. Um, the issue of accommodation is, is a, an attempt, if I can say it this way, in many times when it's argued, not always, but many times when it's argued, is an attempt to save the Bible for modern man. Hmm. Yeah. And I prefer to let the Bible save modern man. <laughs> uh, now, now, in their view of accommodation, would they uh, – sorry, I didn't mean yeah, to take yeah, over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Would, did Paul understand that he was doing this? He wouldn't understand that. No, right? the accommodation, is a, times, right? accommodation right. is a modern term placed on Paul to talk about how we can still make sense of the Bible for a modern man rather than being an explanation for what Paul himself is consciously doing. Mm -hmm. yes. and, and, and so, again, it, it's an important point, and I, I think it, it says powerfully how this text is being, uh, being dealt with. Uh, and, and, the, and I guess the way I, I, the way I want to say this is, goes something like this, that 
However you conceive of the way Origins is portrayed in the Bible, and we have done nothing in this podcast to discuss when we think creation took place or anything like that. That's not our purpose here. There is a moment when God places his image in that which he has created and makes that thing a human being. That's what we're talking about. And the, and the Bible says that moment is Adam and that moment is Eve. Yeah. And, uh, and so if you ask me my own personal view about where the bottom line is on this discussion, that, that's kind of the bottom line. And, and I think if you, if you pull that out of the picture, if you say, well, Adam's just a picture of the fact that all humans fail or that we all sin or whatever, we've, we've lost this, this connection to the image of God being placed in a human being. At some point, God makes a conscious act to create humanity. And that's being expressed in the picture of Adam and Eve. Nathan, you want to have anything you want to add? Yeah, Dr. Chisholm, uh, I, I resonate with your question and um, your question about do, do those who question the, uh, the historicity of Adam actually suggest that Paul misunderstood something? And um, I do happen to have a, a book written by a prominent evangelical who has come to question the historicity of Adam, where he says, as I see it, and this is a quote, as I see it, the scientific evidence we have for human origins and the literary evidence we have for the nature of ancient stories of origins are so overwhelmingly persuasive that belief in a first human, such as Paul understood him, is not a viable option. Hmm. So I, I do think this is the... Uh, this is the pathway that that some are 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 beating in, in order to extricate themselves from the difficulty of a of a first human being. And the beauty of that quote, if I can say it that way, is is that he's very very clear what's motivating the decision. The decision yes. is being motivated by two factors. One is science, and the other is a particular literary reading of the early chapters of. Genesis. Now, we are in the context of this podcast in the context of the one that we have done with Dick Averbeck are discussing the literary elements of that. We have raised questions about whether that, in fact, is as persuasive and decisive as that quotation suggests, yeah. and we are promising at some point to bring in a, a discussion at the science level to talk about that aspect of the equation, because, again, a full discussion of this issue uh, really can't take place without those factors also being laid on the table and discussed. Having said that, it's very important to know what the text itself is actually doing and saying, right. and and, that, and that's what that's what we're trying to do uh, here. But okay. that genre can, argument ahead. is is uh, an important one that is used by those who deny the historical Adam, and I'm looking forward to what Dick has to say because I know he'll have something very significant to offer, and so I'd like to encourage everyone to make sure that they. They check that uh, interview out as well because I'm just chomping at the bit. I would love to contest <laughs> that second aspect of that quotation. Uh, when when you start to compare the biblical origin stories with the ancient or eastern materials, the comparisons that have been made are based on a very faulty use of an outdated form-critical method, but I, I won't go there. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson. 
publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carner. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carner during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Yeah, there, there. We've we've actually, uh, as we take Ryan, our our producer's going to kill me, but we've already made this interview, so uh, so I can tell I can tell you, yeah, I can tell you that that we discuss this in some detail, and we go through and compare some of what's going on in the in the ancient literature with what you see in the New Testament, the different emphases and the different kind of imagery that's used, and the associations that made at one level are pretty superficial compared to the mm-hmm. substance things that are going on. Yeah. So all of that to say that although people have reasons and bring forward reasons for for expressing themselves differently on this matter, uh, we think there is a, 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 another way to put the package together and think about it, and that's why we've taken the time uh, to do this. Let me pick up mm-hmm. on one of Bob's questions was what does Paul think? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in light of the, what he's or arguing here in Romans 5, it's, I, it's ironic as well that in Acts 17, when he's at uh, Athens, in the midst of a, a very cosmopolitan setting, in the midst of a very public forum setting, in the midst of a very philosophical, philosophically contested mm. environment with the Stoics as well as the uh, Epicureans, when he argues his theology from beginning to end, he starts with, from one man mm-hmm. came all of the inhabitants of the world, and God has determined not only their placement, but their habitation, their limitations, and he argues all the way to final judgment. So if there was a time, in my thinking, if there was a time to dodge the, the origins issue, it wouldn't have been at Mars Hill, at the Areopagus. It would have been, that would have been the time to say, generalized humanity, et cetera, et cetera. But he goes on record, one man came everyone else. Mm. And so uh, what he holds in Romans, he, you know, preaches in Acts. What he preaches in Acts, he's going to repeat in 1 Corinthians 15, because it doesn't just relate to justification. His argument of the comparison of Adam and Christ will also relate to resurrection and all eternity. Man, that was such a great transition. I think we'll go to 1 Corinthians 15, because <laughs> uh, uh, that's actually where I was going next. 1 Corinthians 15. You're welcome. 15, any, anytime. The check is in the mail. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also came through a man. Here's this one-man contrast again, like we saw in Romans, except now we're dealing with resurrection and death and life. For just as in Adam all die so also in Christ all will be made alive. Uh, I think well, – we don't need to beat a dead horse I, – I, I think this is a parallel in the kind of typology that we see. It is a contrastive kind of parallel, and we see the contrast between death and resurrection, death and life, um, very much like what we saw in Romans Five, except Romans 5, of course, is the entry of sin and the entry of justification. Of course, justification leads into resurrection. So this is all one cloth. This is all one thing that we're talking about, ultimately, in terms of the foundational role that Adam is playing uh, in, these, 
in these texts. I even see Paul going a bit further in that in verse uh, 40. Uh, 40, it's 45, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, the first man, Adam, became a living being, God breathing into him the breath of life. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Mm-hmm. Speaking of John chapter 7, where he is going to pour out the spirit, Acts chapter 1, where the promise of the Father he'll receive when he ascends, and the spirit is then poured out. And uh, his life becomes our life, and it's just as essential as Adam's was to our natural living, as Christ is to our Christian life. Yes, and that's, of course, part of what makes this, uh, the, the, this particular aspect of, of the theology so Christian, is that Jesus provides something that supplies what Adam, the, 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 very, <laughs> the very predicament that Adam put us into. Um, Nathan, you're shaking your head. Oh, oh. We've lost. We've it. lost. We lost his sound. So well, uh, let me <clears throat> let me come back to that okay. text while we're uh, trying to resurrect Nathan. <laughs> I think I think we're I got think him back. back. Got him you're back. back. <laughs> no, you're back. Go ahead. I, I'm I'm agreeing with you, but I'll save my comments for uh, for later. How about that? Okay, that sounds good. Yeah, I find it fascinating that in verse 45. Uh, as Elliot introduced us to, uh, where you are in 44, you have uh, the natural body compared to the spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. The first man, Adam, he says it that way, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. So he gives us first, he gives us origin, he gives us timing, and he then goes into this contrast. I've called this the the comparison of the atoms, A-T-O-M-S, <laughs> as well as the comparison of the atoms uh, as you walk your way through there. And the first one is from the earth. So the first man, Adam, is linked to the earth, and he therefore is earthly. The second man is from heaven, and as is the earth... Uh, from the earth he is earthly, and as though, you know, from the earth, he, excuse me, picks it up. Let me read it in verse 48. As is the earthly, so are those who are earthly, and as is the heavenly, so are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Yeah. So we were born <clears throat> in the image of Adam, but also uh, in the image of God, but in a new sense, being a new creation, we will one day be like Christ and bear his image as a heavenly image, mm-hmm. and so you you get you get order, uh, you get historicity, you get primacy, you get origins, uh, all the way through here. So there's really a, an argument from anthropology, biblical anthropology. Uh, he goes to biblical Christology, and he finishes obviously with eschatology, as to where all of this is going and to go. There's just a pinch of soteriology and in there too. <laughs> it's all made possible by soteriology. Put a pinch between your cheek and exactly gum. Right. Anyway, <laughs> it's, it's the soteriology and the Christology. That's what I meant. There that's you right. go. Very good. Good. Uh, we got. We have two passages as we're running out of time. Uh, I want to touch on briefly just to kind of wrap our survey up and and be sure that we've touched on uh, at least most of the texts that are relevant here. Um, we have 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, and Jude 14. I'm going to read them, uh, juxtapose them to one another, and then we'll, we'll discuss these and then summarize. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 13, for Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because she was fully deceived, fell into transgression. Now, here actually is, an, is an, a new element in the emphasis, and that is going back to the story of Genesis 3 and highlighting the fact that the woman first 
disobeyed God, and then Adam, although in the end Adam was held responsible for the, for the transgression. And then Jude 14, now Enoch, the seventh in descent beginning with Adam, even prophesied of them, saying, look, the Lord is coming with thousands and thousands of holy ones, and then it moves on to the prophecy of Enoch. So again, uh, allusion to the genealogical structure that we talked about that exists in Genesis, um, talking about uh, how many generations we're talking about between uh, Adam and Enoch. So these kind of round out the New Testament uh, texts that uh, are relevant to this discussion. Um, any comments on either 1 Timothy or Jude? I think the 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14 link with the 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where you have the order of leadership mentioned, God, Christ, man, woman. Mm -hmm. And so those both would show that the practical arguments in the ecclesiology and the function of the church uh, are rooted in a historical reference and the ideology going back to, again, the ideology going back to uh, the creation account for why leadership has is said to be what it is. So it, those two go together, I think. And uh, again, th th we haven't discussed every passage that's relevant here in detail, but uh, 1 Corinthians 11 is a nice example of one where we've got an allusion to uh, to the creation of man and woman and the discussions that assume a background to Genesis without actually mentioning uh, the, the names. The right. names, right. exactly. And, and if we did that, we would we would be here a while. Um, uh, we come to we, we've come through our text. Uh, Elliot, you had something you want to say? No, I was. You had a summary. You were you had a summary. Add. Yeah, I was. I'm, are we ready for your summary? Oh, are, are you speaking to me? Now? Yes, yes, Nathan. Yeah, Nathan yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, I I, I do. Uh, the the thing that that makes this such a critical issue in my way of thinking is. The connection that we've already seen biblically between the need for a historical Adam and our need for salvation, uh, caught in between those is a doctrine of sin. And the, the thing that, that perplexes me is how can someone deny the historicity of Adam and rescue a, a doctrine of sin that would adequately explain what we've read in Scripture. And so far, I, I can't find a way to do that. So far, it seems to me denying the historicity of Adam is absolutely fatal to a biblical doctrine of sin. I always end up uh, giving uh, credit to man that he does not deserve if Adam was not a historical person. I always make too much of man's ability to save himself if I dispense with a historical Adam. And, and this, is, this is the idea that, that haunts me as I consider the, the future of evangelicalism. Um, if, if we buy this idea that Adam never really personally existed. Um, I am very afraid for the doctrine of sin and, as a consequence, the doctrine of, of salvation um, in the evangelical world. It, it, it seems to me uh, this is a foundational issue, and uh, 
and, and I, I kind of uh, would like to leave this with uh, one of the ideas that I stole from John Calvin. Not that he's right on everything he says, but in uh, the Institute's Book 2, Chapter 1, he says, it, it's not strange to think that the one man who perverted the whole order of nature in heaven and on earth deteriorated his race also by his revolt. And, and this is where I'm, I have to plant my flag. What Adam did in rebelling against God affected me. Mm. It changed the, the kind of humanity that I have. I'm a sinful, rebellious creature because of what Adam did. And I can't say that if there what never was a historical Adam. In other words, your, your point that you're making here is that if we do away with Adam and his effect on not just the human race, but on the entirety of the creation, because yes. this is something that it, 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 that hits across the creation. It's a comprehensive doctrine. Yes. Uh, then we, what we, what we do is we leave ourselves only responsible for the existence of sin, and we hold out perhaps the possibility that I can do well as well as not sin. I can do well enough as well as not sin. And what the point that you're trying to make is that Scripture doesn't let you go there. That's exactly my point, and that's exactly the thing that scares me the most about this entire discussion. Is that if we understand that Adam has, uh, in one way or another, passed on to all of us a, a lack of responsiveness to God that leaves us short, yes. uh, then we need to understand that uh, that's a part of the rationale for why it is Jesus has to come and has to change us from within. Uh, not just not just declare us righteous, but actually uh, change who we are and restore the image of God in who we are to a potential for fullness that it currently lacks. Exactly right. Okay. Yes. Um, well, I think we have uh, come to the end of our time. I don't know if any of the rest of you have anything you want to add to that. That's a nice summary of kind of where this pulls us together. Just just to list. It affects your view of creation, the fall, the generations, uh, salvation with its imputation and justification, uh, marriage, family, uh, the church leadership, the nature of the resurrection, final judgment, and even in the illusions in Revelation, the reality of heaven. Other than that, this doesn't have any relevance. Yeah, it, it, it just touches the entirety of the creation. Other than creation that. groans exactly. for the redemption that Jesus Christ brings. And that need exists because of what happened uh, under Adam. Can I link back one final thing for our listeners? Sure. And those who are watching, uh, Nathan mentioned Romans 8. It's a fascinating passage in Romans 8 that why did God subject creation to futility? It was with hope. Mm. It's a great statement in hope that they would ultimately find their salvation in Christ. Uh, the very reason that God... Uh, put creation in this position uh, because of the fall was so that their only hope, as we've just mentioned, would be found in Jesus Christ and a new creation. And it, and it does so in a way that that authentically reflects what it means to be made in the image of God, which is that we all make choices for which we are responsible in relationship to God. And so it puts the onus if you will, right where it ought to be, and that is in our, our need 
to be responsive to the God who created us. I think the issue here in part is if we lose a doctrine of Adam in the picture, we lose our sense of our accountability to a creator for the relationship that we have to him. And I think there are a lot of things going on in our culture today that try and neutralize the presence of God in such a way that we don't think about him as a creator if we think about him at all. And we don't think about the accountability that we have to him as a creator. What the Adam element does is it makes us – it reminds us we are accountable. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we are accountable in a way that we cannot fix for ourselves. We are accountable in a way in which God has to come in and fix it by his goodness and his grace. That's the hope. And I think that that is an important part of this story as well. Well, I thank you all for uh, gathering around the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. Today our subject has been the historical Adam, and my hope is that for you, the listeners, this has been a fruitful journey through Scripture and the passages that discuss Uh, who Adam is, and as a result also who we are and who Jesus Christ is. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.